Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, well, welcome back, Solar Warriors, Climate Champions. These are conversations with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us in this clean energy revolution here on Suncast. If Thursdays are thoughtful insights into the who of the industry, consider this the what, when, how, where, the tools of the trade, if you will. And very often, as is today, we bring you content from one of our many live broadcasts and trainings. This one in particular is coming to you from the most recent live event that we've held, which is RE+, where we partnered with the conference to bring the Power Up Media Zone to life. At the Media Zone, we interviewed industry thought leaders, personalities, executives, and founders to glean their insights about the current trends and where the industry is going. This is one such interview, and I know you are going to love it. And if you're new here, I would hope that you will subscribe to the show. I hope that we earn your attention and trust after today's conversation. Of course, you can find more than 525 additional founder stories and startup advice over in our catalog of back conversations at mysuncast.com. You will also find all of the conversations that we streamed live from the Power Up Media Zone over on YouTube. If you just search Suncast Media, or if you just put in to YouTube the channel marker for Suncast Media, it's all one word, Suncast Media, you will certainly find our channel and become one of our more than 1,000 subscribers to that channel as well. For now, let's get down to business and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, with another practical, tactical, live conversation from RE Plus here on Suncast. As we get into this episode, I want to set the stage. At the Power Up Media Zone, the day was divided into morning and afternoon pretty elegantly with a segment we call the Industry Pulse. Thanks to our friends at Interflow and their head of business development, Nate Giovanelli. This segment was not hosted by me, Nico Johnson. It was hosted by Nate. Nate brought in industry experts for five to 10 minute snippets all about their expertise and where they see the trends specifically in our industry. Everything from human resources, as you will see, to battery storage and platforms and more. This is a wonderful segment that I hope will be a recurring feature, not just at RE+, but in the Suncast canon. Thank you, Nate and Interflow, for bringing us Industry Pulse. I hope that you, listeners, will enjoy this compilation, as the Industry Pulse was actually every day at noon. We have some of the highlights here curated for your enjoyment. Welcome, everybody, to the Power Up Media Zones, produced by Suncast Media and presented by Fluence. We're streaming live on suncast.live. Thanks to our streaming sponsors, SunGrow and Tygo. If if you're watching on the live stream, we thank you for tuning in. I want to welcome our next guest, Alex McClendon, 
And I feel like you already gave her an introduction. Everyone knows who Baywa RE is, but Alex is the head of human resources for Baywa RE America. She's Woo. responsible for leading the regional people strategy in Canada, Mexico, United States. Obviously, Baywa RE has a tremendous presence, 29 countries. There's a company that has six businesses that span the whole range of renewables. I'm really excited to have you on. We had an awesome chat. And you can already see that no matter, we talk about technology, we talk about all these different things on the industry pulse, and it's all coming back to labor. So I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy what you have to say. And how I wanted to start was that PV Magazine, I think it was just like two or three weeks ago, published an article that projected that residential solar companies alone were going to hire... 340,000 new workers in the next five years. And right now, the total, res- the total industry for solar has something like 255,000. So it's a tremendous increase, and that's just a- across one segment. And I'm just curious at how you think of this. And when, in general, like where are these workers going to come from? What industries have transferable skill sets, and how are we going to attract them to renewables? Well, so first of all, I want to say thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, the good thing about our industry is that it's growing by leaps and bounds, and we're going to be able to attract workers from everywhere. I mean, I think that there are some places that people think of automatically. I'm a former oil and gas person. I think that there are a lot of folks with transferable skills from oil and gas. We're talking about possibly, as we move away from oil and gas, 600 thousand employees from the oil and gas sector who could come over to renewables and make the right choice like I did. <laughs> so it's not just it's not just people there from there. I mean, I think that the all segments of the energy industry are going to have uh, lots of opportunities for people to come into renewables. So each year there's a solar job census and it, it's performed by the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. It's IREC for, for those who have not heard of it. But they have shown that Firms, even particularly in this environment and with all the growth, are having difficulty hiring. In fact, this last one from the, that was released this year found that 89% of firms in 2021 reported difficulty finding qualified applicants. Why do you think that is? And again, how do we overcome this challenge of finding applicants in this fast-growing industry? So I'm going to have a bit of a controversial take on this. I'm sure that people are finding it difficult to to hire what they consider to be qualified candidates. My challenge to the industry is think about what is really qualified. What what does a qualified candidate mean? I've had some conversations with some of my colleagues at Baywa that, you know, if you don't look and talk and act a certain way, I mean, do you have a chance to be in renewables? I don't look and act that certain way and would I have a chance in renewables? We need to figure out what the qualifications really are. We also need to branch out a little bit And the idea is, you know, qualified candidates, well, we're going to cannibalize ourselves if we keep looking for the same types of candidates. And so looking for qualified candidates is more about opening our minds about what qualifications might actually mean and uh, widening the net as to what those candidates might be coming to us for. I also think that a, a kind of a passive way of looking at this is that uh, candidates are attracted to us. We need to go out into the streets <laughs> and get the candidates. They're not just sitting in a, you know, they're not, we have people here who are at a job fair and they're, and obviously they're taking the initiative, but there are plenty of other people who couldn't get the day off today in order to come to a job fair. 
there are plenty of people who, given a little bit of training, could be qualified. And I think it would be significantly less difficult for hiring managers to feel like they're having a hard time attracting candidates if they just widen their net. The other thing that I would like to say is, if you're not paying well, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> if you're not if you're not paying well, then I bet you it's real hard to find candidates if you're not paying well. If you don't offer work-life balance, if people don't like what the kind of work you are doing, yeah, I bet you it's real difficult. The way you answered that is like you almost answered my next question as well. So we're gonna have to peel that back a bit because. Right now, as reported in the job census, less than a third of entry-level solar jobs require a bachelor's degree. So when you think of qualifications, you know, you still have over 66% don't require a degree. And a large percentage of firms that are surveyed have on-the-job training. So I was going to say, what do you think is missing? I, I think you kind of you hit it there, oh, but is it, does it come down to pay? Does it come down to being more proactive so to answer your specific question, first of all, let me challenge the idea that a third of the jobs yeah. in renewable energy require a bachelor's degree. My job doesn't require a bachelor's degree no matter what anyone tells you. Most of the jobs that I, inter you know, that I interact with as the head of human resources, I would say do not require a bachelor's degree. Now, is a bachelor's degree some kind of shorthand for some people to say, oh gosh, they can read, they can write, you know, they have a certain amount of discipline? Maybe. But there are other ways to find candidates who have those same skill sets. So first of all, let's, the bachelor's degree thing, that, you know, that's a whole different situation. If we widen our net, we will not have as much difficulty finding qualified candidates. And yes, if we pay better, <laughs> we would not have that much difficulty finding candidates. In terms of your question, it goes back to what I was saying in the second part of my answer, which is the idea that candidates would just be coming to us right? When we're the ones who are in need, we need to go to them. And it's not post and pray anymore, where you post a job and you feel like people will come in droves and then we get to pick like at a grocery store. I, I want an apple. I want a banana. In-house training, even if we have it as a benefit, we need to go pound the pavement and invite people to be part of, this, of these in-house trainings. And I would say a better advantage would be to go to those traditionally ignored communities and seek folks out who might be interested in this type of work and never even thought about this type of work. I love that. Yeah, you definitely don't need a bachelor's degree to do my job either. Nope. <laughs> so you haven't figured that out yet for those <laughs> listening. But I mean, so I, that's why I knew that you're going to be a great guest. You, so I'm a fantastic You're guest. tremendous. I am it's, uh, phenomenal. <laughs> but also with Baywa RE, you guys have such reach, as I, I said in your intro, and you, you really have a front row seat across the whole industry broadly because of all the different things you do. And I'm just wondering, are you seeing labor as an obstacle to growth? Not even maybe for the industry, but for your business, however you want to take that. I mean, wh what are you seeing with the labor that's out there or hiring in general? Do I see it as an obstacle? Nah. But I can tell you that if, so I can tell you that Baywa is interested in rapid growth, right? We're, the industry is growing quickly. Baywa wants the industry to grow quickly. Baywa itself is growing quickly. Just in my region, we've doubled in the last year, almost doubled. So we want big growth. The key is to not have such big growth without intention, to be able to be strategic, 
and to, and to have the growth be sustainable. It makes no sense for us to grow tremendously and then half of our employees leave after six months because they weren't, a, you know, they weren't fit for the job or because we didn't orient them correctly or whatever. And so do I think it's an obstacle? No. I think, though, that it means in, that we need to be intentional about the way that we grow and sustainable and strategic. And the way that Baywa is doing that is big Baywa in the sky, which is in Munich, and also Baywa here in the Americas. We're investing a lot in our internal recruiting functionality so that there is someone whose whole job is to be on the hunt for talent so that I can focus on other things that I need to do. So we are running out of time. I might try and fit two more in because that just led me to this next question that I'm really glad you touched on in your answer because when I think about Baywa RE, I think of a, a culture first company. And you, and you said something interesting. It's like, you don't want to just hire people for the sake of hiring them and then they leave because maybe you don't develop them or they weren't the right fit. But can you, what advice do you have for other companies or what's anything that you've implemented or that you can attract and maintain talent and keep them happy so that you can, again, you can focus on adding the right people without having all that turn? I want to answer that question with a different question. Sure. Because people have been talking, some version of what you're referring to, people have been talking about quiet quitting in that way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say that the same reasons that people supposedly are doing quiet quitting, and for those of you who don't know what quiet quitting is, the idea is kind of folks not going above and beyond, right, in their job, because for whatever reason, that's called quiet quitting. They're just doing the bare minimum to stay employed. That phenomenon is the same reason why people are leaving their jobs. And if employers are not offering, I mean, I hate to use jargony terms, but if, if the employer is not offering a value proposition and the employees are engaged in what they're doing, then it doesn't matter with the pizzas and the, I'm going to give you a big title and all that. It do, that n does not matter. I promise you, as many people as I've seen who have gotten the pizza and the big title and then they go somewhere else where they feel valued. <laughs> right? So... I didn't really answer that question no, exactly you how you wanted. That's but perfect. It's engagement. And I, and I don't mean engagement, meaning like it, it has to be a promotion every six months. I mean, I wake up at three in the morning to take calls with Germany because I really freaking like my company and I like the people that I work with. For me, that's a big deal. That's an awesome spot to end. So before we leave, I really appreciate you coming on. I had a lot of fun, but I want to know, is there anything that you want to plug before you leave? My album. Go for it. No, I'm just <laughs> I was so wondering where that was going. <laughs> no. No. Misty, do I have things to promote? Oh, yes, the happy hour. <laughs> this is the international sign this is for the happy international hour. Sign for those for wondering. <laughs> Go to the happy hour, Baywa or Baiva, if you're saying it in German. Oh, is that it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Baywa or Baiva. R E. Right. R dot E. And where's the happy hour at? In the, in the beer, beer garden. garden. In, All right. In the so beer go garden. to the happy hour yes. in the beer garden later. I'll be sure Just to stop by. Thank you way. so much for coming Thank on. You. I really appreciate it. I am super excited for this segment in particular. I've been looking forward to this one all week. I really don't feel like Abby needs an intro. <laughs> but uh, for those that don't know... She's the president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association, SIA, the National Trade Organization for the U.S. solar and storage industry. Abby is laser-focused on creating policies and conditions needed for the solar industry to lead 
our transformation to a 100% clean energy economy. Thank you for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. If you haven't met, if we haven't met yet, we have met, but if the Listeners haven't. I was the one who was on the dance floor until two in the morning, I told, <laughs> and on the dance floor at the Solar Fight Club the night before. <laughs> and you made it here. Of course, I, I made it here, man. It's, it's a RE Plus. I got to show up. That's what we Don't live hang for. if you can't show up. That's right. I love the energy <laughs> this year. So, I mean, really, what I wanted to start with was obviously, Sia had a huge role in this historic legislation. And we talked about it. Everyone knows about the IRA, I think, at this point here. <laughs> and I'm just curious from your perspective, I, I can imagine all the time and energy spent on this. What are you most excited about in that bill? Like, was there one aspect that you're like, wow, they nailed it? Wow. I would say, of course, I would say two things, right? First of all, it was years in the making. It did not happen by accident. We, the industry stood right next to us and helped us achieve that. I would say, one, the fact that there is a 10-year extension, right? Like, that's never happened in our industry. That's never happened in the history of the climate challenge. And so having that clear roadmap, right, and that policy certainty, so we're not subject to this sort of roller coaster of tax incentives is huge. And then secondly is the manufacturing credits, right? In 2019, we didn't have any manufacturing policy in place, right? We didn't even have a manufacturing division at CS. So we created one. We held a summit. We committed a white paper. We met with the Biden administration long before it was the Biden administration when it was just a candidate. And then it was a president-elect. And then finally, it was the Biden administration. And we said, this is what we need to do, right? And it's crazy to go from nothing in 2019, like a, not a strategy in 2019, to legislation passed in 2022. And we're going to transform our industry. That's pretty cool. I would say so. So obviously, this bill, I'm sure... I don't know if you read the whole thing. Not, probably not many people that have. I, I, I read part of it. I got people for that. I Come tried. <laughs> but I'm wondering... What do you think are the challenges in the implementation of the bill? So I think the first challenge is just there's so much in the bill and so much that needs to be interpreted and guidance needs to be issued by the federal government, right? I mean, you know, you're a business person. I'm a business person. We don't like to deploy our capital in the face of uncertainty. And so getting the government to move, move quickly, but also do it correctly so that it works for your company, it works for your company, it works for your company. That's sort of the biggest like logistical challenge. Everything's important, right? And if everything's important, nothing is a priority. It's a challenge. I would say that's the biggest one. So for those that listen the last two days, particularly yesterday, like one of the main topics was labor shortage, workforce development, diversity. How do we include more people? Because we're going to need people to fuel this growing right. industry, which is right. growing before this. And now, I mean, obviously it's next level. Exactly. I like that. I'm going to use that. Supercharge. Supercharge. So, <laughs> How do you think this legislation lends itself to our commitment to diversity? Yeah. I mean, well, this legislation lines up economic incentives with the social policy we want of more diversity in our, both in terms of our, our workforce and our deployment. And so when you incent people with money, they tend to do what you want them to do, right? So you think about the low-income adder, right, for distributed generation. You think about sort of placing in energy communities. That's around where energy is going to go. If you think about the workforce, right, there's a ton of, of, there were a ton of dollars in both the infrastructure bill and this one as well to make sure that we bring a diverse group. And at this point, like I would say 99.9% .9 of the companies I talk to say that labor shortage is, is a very near term concern for them in terms of being able to execute. And so we can't be fussy about who comes into our industry, right? We have to welcome everyone 
So I'm excited that this, not only the bill itself, but I think this industry has really matured in its understanding of not only why it's important to have a diverse workforce, but being committed to making that happen. So that's one, if you ask me one of the things I'm most excited about about the bill, it's really realizing the promise of that. That's awesome. So clearly this legislation is a massive win for the environment, climate justice. I'm super excited about that aspect in of itself. But what do you think will continue to be challenging in the industry? We're talking about this rapid growth in labor. Outside of that, what other maybe headwinds do you see? Yeah, well, we're in this situation, right, where something we, the sort of framework we've been trying to create, the certainty we've been trying to create for the last few years, we've actually done. So the, the promise and sort of the vision has been articulated and cemented, and now we gotta, we got to execute against that vision, right? We have to realize the promise. And so there's a couple things, I think, that will, could hamper us. I remind myself that they're all products of our success, Right. Like if we if we need to solve interconnection, which we absolutely need to solve interconnection, it's because we have so many projects coming online. Right. So that I think could slow us down. If we think about same with I mean, you could say the same argument about labor. Right. Yeah. Ethical supply chains. Right. If we need more and more and more product to build more and more and more solar. Well, that's a good problem to have that could slow us down. Right. If we don't get that right. So those are the things I would add recycling to that. Right. If we if you want to build a project in Massachusetts or Indiana or Mississippi and you have to post some crazy bond or, or sign some commitment that you're in 30 years, you're going to you know, do something with your panels. That's going to slow you down. And so all of these things, like my job is to clear the path. Somebody called me a snowplow yesterday. I was like, can we come up with a better, better descriptor for me than snowplow? I don't know. I like head of the spear better. I yeah. like a little bit more elegant than a snowplow. But that's my job, right? It's to yeah. clear the path for you so that you can just keep building. So we talked already about some of the challenges of the bill, but also what excites you about the bill. And I'm just curious, after this, this awesome week here, and yeah. I, I think the energy has been so, so intense. It's been awesome to have everyone back at RE+. Is there anything from the show that you saw that you didn't know about or you're particularly excited about or you just thought was cool that yeah. they could share with everybody? Yeah, man. I, I it was totally like electric in here. It Sorry was. for the terrible pun. But um, I was excited about two things. One, on the sort of technology side, right? This show, I think, and our evolution of this show is that we are looking at customer solutions, right? So we talk about hydrogen. We talk about solar. We talk about storage. We talked about electric vehicles. We talked about grid integration, but we really focus on is how do we deliver what the customer wants? And the customer of, you know, customer could be a utility, it could be Kmart, or it could be my neighbor. But it's what is a customer want? I think that's a cool evolution of our industry. But just personally for me, like the people. I have, I like I miss you guys. I really miss being with you and seeing you and hearing about your business and watching you grow. I feel like, I mean, honestly, I am a mom. I feel like a mom. Like some of you had little. You had little boosts and now you have big boosts and I'm so proud of you, right? And I can't wait to see how this industry grows. Like I had a couple different events for women and I went to all the affinity groups yesterday and seeing those communities grow and people feel welcome here in our space. That's really important to me. And I, I have gotten a sense that we're doing a better job with that. Awesome. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on to the Industry Pulse, sponsored by Interflow, your solar platform. And I normally ask everyone to 
to plug something, but I'm going to do the plug for you. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, if you're not a member of SIA and you're here, you need to be one. I think that's what you would say. That's what I would say. Uh, okay. Because these problems, not problems, the good, the challenges, the things that our industry is going to continue to face, whether it's legislative or otherwise, they're not going to go away. So we all need to come together and we need to make sure that we're members of SIA so that they can continue to fight for climate justice. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. And with us today, we have... The man, the myth, and the legend. Oh, wow. Mr. Pat Bennett. So, Pat, I'm going to take a little bit different spin with Pat because Pat has successfully started and ran a variety of tech companies and currently is the co-founder and CEO of Enterflow, which I think everyone at this point knows who Enterflow is if they've been listening to the show. But we're a, a software company that is streamlining the process for residential installers from lead to PTO. And the take I wanted, really wanted to end with that I, I'm really excited to talk to Pat about, and we actually did not talk about this before, so no. I have no clue what he's going to say. unscripted. <laughs> but I think the, the perfect ending for this whole three days is we've talked about labor shortages. We've talked about software and how software can help solve some of those problems. But what we haven't talked about combined is really how to grow, cultivate, have a great culture, get people into the fold so that you can grow your business. So what I wanted to start with is that most people have trouble starting one successful startup, but you have a 
impressive track record as a successful entrepreneur and not just in solar and in other industries as well. And I wanted, I wondered if you could just share your experience and specifically if you can just talk to the audience about any advice you would have on how to run a prosperous startup. Well, I guess first uh, we'd have to define prosperous right now. <laughs> you know, Interflow is a startup, but we have a lot of work to do, a lot of unfinished business, I feel like. The first thing that comes to mind is having a mission that's uh, kind of bigger than yourself. Because uh, later when you have to get into hiring and, and bringing other people on and, and kind of having people follow you, having a mission that's worth waking up for every day and working on, that's a lot more fun than just trying to make money. So at Interflow, our mission is to make solar affordable to every human on the planet. And that's going to take time. It's going to take more than uh, you know, a couple days. And it's going to take a lot of partners. So I think mission is a big one. I think another one is not being afraid to be wrong. So when we started Interflow, we actually focused on energy efficiency. And we were trying to create tools that made it easy to sell attic insulation and, and home improvement products and, and HVAC. And uh, realized that our kind of approach in software and tools were better fit for a different market, and that was solar. So we weren't afraid to make that pivot. And I think you have to be open to uh, you know, the best ideas, and the best ideas really should win. So the last thing, I think, to be successful in any business is to listen to your end customers. I spend a lot of time out there meeting with partners, understanding the pain that they're going through, and then creating solutions that actually make a difference. And I'm kind of surprised sometimes when I talk to startup founders or, or even just other company owners that they'll say they don't spend a lot of time with their end customer. And I think that's a massive mistake because the decisions made in the office are, those are probably the worst decisions. The best decisions are made in the field when you're actually talking to your end customer. Yeah. And I, I've seen you practice both of those things. In fact, you know, we don't have time to tell the entire story, but the whole reason why I work with Enterflow is because of the mission. And that's what really resonated with me. And as we got to know each other over time, I knew it was going to be a great fit. So can you tell me, like, what lessons have you learned from previous startups that you had or previous mm. businesses that really maybe contributed to the success of Enterflow or how we got here or lessons learned that, you know, I, I can't repeat that? Sure. I think the biggest one is to find a co-founder. Honestly, when I, when I tell a lot of people who are thinking about starting a business, I'm like, well, who are you starting this with? Because there's a lot of dark days in <laughs> entrepreneurship. There were nights where Spencer and I would be talking on the phone we're like, dude, we're going out of business. And then the next day we're like, dude, we're on top of the world. So I think it's good to, to have someone who compliments you in a lot of ways. There's, really th there's things he's really good at and those are his core competencies. Yeah. And they're things I would rather not be doing. And then there's things that I really love to do that he'd probably rather not be doing. So I think finding a co-founder to kind of go to battle with is, is really important. I think the other one is building a great team. You know, the people that, that come in and, and share your vision and are going to go, you know, try to push your mission forward every day. Those are the people that are really going to move the needle more than just, you know, you and your co-founder. So I think people is probably one of the biggest things. I also think working on problems that should be solved I think a lot of people think like, oh, we could do this, we could build this, but without getting market validation, without talking to customers, without kind of trying things and getting feedback, they maybe are trying to solve a problem that really doesn't need to be solved. And that's going to be a really hard battle, you know, years to come when um, you're trying to drive change and grow revenue when people really don't need what you have. So getting that validation is also super important.
I had a ton of fun yesterday talking about technology and how we're going to leverage technology in the sector. And today, I have a great lineup of folks that are going to come on and talk about a variety of topics that loop all this together. So we're going to be talking about policy, infrastructure, workforce development today. And I'm super excited to have with me Brian Lynch uh, to talk about everything from the current state of the supply chain to the IRA. For those that don't know Brian, Brian is a a solar OG for sure and a, a solar evangelist, as he would say. We go way back. His, his resume is seriously too long to review, but he has served as the director of sales and storage for LG. Most recently was the senior vice president of sales for ADT Solar. He's the owner of Brighton Renewables and uh, certainly widely regarded as an expert in supply chain. So Brian also happens to be my solar spirit animal, as he knows. And I'm really excited to talk to you today, Brian. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I appreciate it, Nate. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I think one of the things I wanted to get your take on is that the, the ink is still drying on the IRA, which is the, for those that don't know, the Inflation Reduction Act. It's really a transformative piece of legislation. And I'm curious what your big takeaways are for how this is going to affect the residential solar industry in particular moving forward. Yeah. So the IRA is probably the most substantive piece of policy that has been passed since I've been in solar, which is going back about 20 years, because what it provides is 10 years of stability. And so if you think about all the different pieces of policy that have been market enablers, they've always had relatively short-term time periods to them. And so whether you're a manufacturer or a downstream installer and you're thinking, well, how do I do a business plan three, four years out because of the, the life cycle of all of this? If you didn't have that policy certainty, it was really hard to rationalize those investments. Now we have that. 10 years is a really long time in any industry, but especially solar. And so you're going to see a lot of investments being created throughout the value chain. So number one is, is market stability, which is going to create stabilization. Number two, we're going to start to see a reduction in, in soft costs, right? This is all about scale. And so the more that these companies reach scale and, and have that stability to make these investments, the more the cost will come down. So of course, I was talking about the increase in the tax credit from 26% to 30% on the residential side. That's going to be absorbed a lot through increased component costs, through increased dealer fees because of a higher interest rate environment. But ultimately, it's the, the companies, that, the installers on the residential side won't have to absorb that. They can now pass that through from an increase in tax credit standpoint. And then over time, as the costs start to decrease, especially on the hard goods, and soft costs like solar app plus adoption. Now that'll be passed through to consumer, to consumers, which will enable greater market expansion. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And one thing I think people want to talk about. I know you're kind of one step now removed from supply chain, but like I, I said in the intro, you're widely regarded as a supply chain expert. You've been in the industry with multiple large manufacturers. So I wanted to to talk to you a little bit about that because. Really, since the start of the pandemic, the U.S. has seen record levels of inflation, right? And also really tight supply chain issues across all sectors. Surely solar, as we all know, has, has been affected like everything else. And I'm wondering, what do you expect to see with supply chain over, say, the next 18 months? Yeah, so, so there's a, a lot of different divergent forces, right? So, so the headline out of the IRA is you have the what was known as the SEMA provisions, which allow for reduce costs or, or subsidization in the form of manufacturing tax credits for full value chain manufacturing, not just for solar panels, but also for trackers as well as inverters. And so you're going to start seeing some reshoring of manufacturing. 
So about this time next year, none of those factories will be online, but the companies that are making those investments will start being able to take orders on their books against those factories, which will come online in the subsequent six months. So you'll start to see some price stabilization. The challenge, though, is you have these other forces, right? So the ADCVD circumvention case, that was a big thing back in like June, July, and then President Biden signed a two-year reprieve on that. That hasn't gone away. And so you talk about an 18-month horizon on this from a supply chain perspective, that doesn't go away. So this time next year at SPI or RE+, we'll be talking about that. And I keep saying SPI, I'm sorry, I'm going to get fined. <laughs> They're going to, it, that's going to be much more top of mind, right? Because if you're an importer and you're developing you know, a downstream 100, 200 megawatt project, those projects have two or three year time horizons. And so that really hasn't gone away. And the final thing that's driving supply chain uncertainty is the forced labor stuff. And so the UFLPA, I think by this time next year, 18 months, most companies that are at risk of that will found supply chain pass around that. And so you'll start to see that diminished as the ADCBD comes back up again. That's great insight. I, if, honestly, if I didn't know what I was going to talk to you about and I wasn't staying disciplined, I would rabbit trail on that for the full hour because there's so many things that we could continue down that. But I think another pressing question when I think about supply chain is when we, we look at the IRA and what it's doing to even increase domestic manufacturing. I'm wondering if you think there's anything in the IRA or just in general, what's in there? Is it enough? Do you think, again, I, I know this is all conceptual, right? No one has their magic ball, but is it enough to really pull manufacturing back to the US in your opinion? So I was talking with somebody, I think it was yesterday, and they said that their belief is that within five years, approximately 50% of components consumed in the solar industry will be made in the US, which is a pretty large number. I think that's a little more aggressive than I would say. You've seen, of course, for solar's large announcement, Hallmark Q-Cells is doing full vertical integration. You have a bunch of other press releases, right? Press releases aren't worth a whole lot until you see a, a shovel in the ground or ribbon cutting. It's very conceptual, but you will absolutely see more domestic supply chain, Nate. The challenge, though, is right now there's an there's a equipment access challenge. A lot of the equipment is made in China, which is subjected to a 301 tariff, right? So that's the next fight that manufacturers are going to have to get through is, is how do we get equipment to make stuff here that isn't tariff? That's kind of a paradoxical challenge that's being faced. The other issue is skilled labor, right? So to use Hanwha as an example, they're aggressively building out capacity in North Georgia. And at some point, they're just going to run out of people. And so as an industry, we have to face this crisis. I know you're talking with some folks later to talk about the people out in this industry, but we need to do a better job as an industry working with vocational schools and services to create this idea of manufacturing is coming back to the US and it's coming back in a big way in the solar space. And we need to develop the next generation of solar talent and employees that are really encouraged for really high-skilled, high-labor, great jobs. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I appreciate the plug. The second half of the hour, we're going to talk with some industry experts about that and how we attract more labor into the workforce. And yesterday, that ties into the whole technology theme and how do we leverage technology to increase efficiency because it is, as you said, it's going to be very challenging to get enough labor at the growth rate that's expected as a result, mainly of, of the IRA, but also just the industry growth in general. So that's a good segue into another question I want to ask you, the super high level that I think you'd have great insight into. And that's with the passage of this legislation, what, if anything, do you think is holding the industry back from reaching its full potential? Do you think it is just that labor component? Is that the main thing? Is there anything else? Like, what do you see on the horizon? It's labor. 100% is labor. For as long as I've been in this industry, Nate, there's been more capital than there have been projects. And projects necessitate people. People develop projects, people build projects, people maintain projects. 
And right now, as we're, we're hitting this transformational moment in the industry, we're scaling from quarter million people up to 400,000 people up to potentially a million people that are going to work in solar. It's going to make lines really long at RE Plus next year <laughs> to get a sandwich, but it's, it's so exciting. And so, how, again, how as an industry do we engage with stakeholders, whether they're community colleges, vocational schools, to help them develop the curriculum? As a quick aside, my, my wife is a STEM teacher, and one of her projects is she surveys all the students at the beginning of the school year about what industries they're interested in. And then she brings in once a month experts, culinary, she'll bring in a local chef, and renewable energy is on there. And the whole goal is, is someone comes in, she never picks me for renewable energy. I was going to ask that. No, she's afraid of that. What they're supposed to do is, is basically make the curriculum tangible. Hey, you want to work in solar or whatever, like this is why you're learning calculus. This is why you're learning physics. And that's great. I appreciate that she does it, but we have to invert that. We have to develop curriculum in the schools that show kids that there's a pathway. If you stay on this path, you can get the job in the industry and the career that you want. And again, this is a, a transformational kind of reform we need to do in the educational system to create the labor that we're going to need as an industry to really build this out. Awesome. I know we're almost out of time, but there's no way I'm not going to ask you this last question because it's actually stemmed from something that you said to me the other day. And I just really wanted your take on it because for some reason, I just wasn't thinking about it this way. And I'm sure there's others out there that, that have been, but I think that the audience will find it interesting. And I'm, I'm wondering, who do you think is going to benefit more from the IRA? Is it the solar companies or is it consumers? So this question actually stems, I, I challenged Nate to an arm wrestle because he's a big <laughs> fan of third-party ownership and I'm a big fan <laughs> of direct ownership and residential. So I said, I'm going to arm wrestle you at, at our RE Plus for this one. So this question is a derivation of that. And I think the answer is honestly the consumers benefit because you're going to have stronger companies that are going to have greater market access, greater stability. And so at the end of the day, the consumer benefits. Solar is such a positive technology. It's a phenomenal sale that saves people money, adds value to their home, and it has environmental attributes. So it doesn't matter the reason that you're investing in solar, there's a positive to it. Now to have healthier companies with healthier balance sheets, better supply chains, better access, which is going to create greater scale, which creates greater market access. There was a McKinsey report from a few years ago that I think it said every five cents per watt we can drop in installation costs, we open up 1% more of market. And today we're at about 3% penetration residential in the US. If we can get to 10%, 20%, 50%, think about the economic enablement that happens from that, as well as the savings that are created for consumers. And so it's a positive all around. But at the end of the day, the folks that invest in solar, that go solar, are the ones that truly benefit from this. That's a great stat. I love that. So we're out of time. I, you know, I could talk to you all day. If you want to reach out to Brian, you can find him on LinkedIn. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before you leave? No, I appreciate it, Nate. Always fun to, to chat solar. I got a little string on my back. So if you see me walking around, <laughs> pull it. I'll talk supply chain and solar all day. Thanks Thank, for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for coming on the Industry Pulse, sponsored by Interflow. Appreciate it. Thanks, bro. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to today's live stream replay from RE Plus Power Up Media Zone. I want to thank once again the sponsors who helped make the Media Zone possible, in particular, Fluence, who is our presenting sponsor, and our wonderful supporting sponsors as well who contributed to the show. Thanks again to RE Plus for trusting us with half of your booth on the show floor. And thanks to each and every one of you who not only showed up here for this replay, but who showed up live on the show floor to help create that audience atmosphere and give us that feedback right from the show floor. 
I'd love to know what you learned from this conversation. If you'd go to mysuncast.com and click on the episode notes page, you'll find a link to the show notes for this episode right in your podcast player in the description. We always link to it. And in that show notes page, you'll easily find links to all of our social media. Would you take a moment and go on to LinkedIn, find the post that we've made for this episode, and let us know what you thought about this one in particular. I know that the guests would love to hear your feedback, and I would love to know how we can make this a more enjoyable experience for you or where exactly this landed and resonated for you. How does this episode help you push forward in your career, your business, your journey in this clean energy revolution? If you want to enjoy even more conversations like this, well, not only do we live stream the whole RE Plus event to our YouTube channel, which is also easily findable there in the show notes page, but we have more than 525 episodes, resources, highlights from all these discussions, along with social media links and each guest's book recommendations, their insights, and so much more over on our website at mysuncast.com. If you've been wondering how you could partner with Suncast, like one of our sponsors did for this live event, or like our many partners throughout the year have partnered on our mini episodes and our custom Tactical Tuesday episodes, or if you'd like to just inquire about potentially having me look at your business through the coaching lens or as an advisor and investor and help scale your clean energy business, well, you could find out how to do more of all of that by going over to mysuncast.com. We try to make it a little easier for you to find the path that meets your needs as you scale your personal and professional journey in the clean energy economy. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.